So we're going to talk about discouragement, and I hope you're not discouraged by what you hear. I hope you're encouraged. The goal is that we would not be, oh, what I like to call Eeyores, where everything is gray, right? My kids used to have a little toy, and you push the, the Eeyore button, and it was gray, gray. So we don't want to be Eeyores. Uh, we're going to deal with discouragement. We're not going to avoid discouragement. It's impossible in a broken world. But hopefully we can learn some things from the Bible that will help us deal with it, help us to cope with it, help us to maneuver Christianly so we're not so discouraged. So that's what I'm going to do today. That's what we're going to talk about. It will be a topical kind of message. There will be an outline. Uh, and so if you are a note taker, we'll, we'll do dealing with discouragement. And as we do so... There will be seven strategies that start with an S. Okay? Seven strategies that start with an S. Does Pastor John alliterate when he... Does he always follow P's and R's and S's? Have you ever heard this one? It's called Always Avoid Alliteration. (laughs) If you must alliterate, and this seems now to have become a perpetual pastoral problem, dating back at least as far as the ministry of Morgan, then for heaven's sake, literally, be careful about one thing, accuracy, the writer says. Apart from the cutesy qualities of carelessly crafted clauses, curiously cultivated by conceited curates, there seems to be no earthly reason for passionately pursuing ponderous pairs of preaching points, partially proclaiming previously plain propositions. And I'm going to skip all kinds of things. It's a fun article. But then rather than disobeying due to disgusting, deceiving drivel that defeats, deprives, denies, and distorts dependable doctrine, you and your congregation will delight in doing desirable deeds. So, Kind of fun. Kind of lighthearted. Um, but I am going to alliterate today. I hope I speak like I'm literate as I alliterate. Um, but that's what we're going to do. Think with me about all the things to, to be discouraged by. Sorry to be a downer on a gloomy day, but from politics to our personal interactions with our family members sometimes, it's discouraging, discouraging what's happening in the church sometimes, discouraging what's happening in our own hearts sometimes, discouraging when we're persecuted, uh, discouraging when you turn on the television or you just turn on your computer or what pops up on my phone I unsolicited. It's so easy to be discouraged, and I'm so discouraged so much of the time. What do we do? How do we cope? How do we maneuver through all of this? That's what we're going to talk about, but let's pray first. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this congregation, for our opportunity to learn from the Bible, from the Lord Jesus Christ, on how to maneuver through life, how to cope amidst a broken, fallen world with so much suffering and so much difficulty, sometimes persecution. Please use this time, have it be a good investment of our time so that we might live for the glory of Christ, so that we might have joy, so that we might leave this session thinking through things in a more biblical way so that it would affect our hearts, it would affect our thinking, it would affect our relationships, uh, that we would bring glory and honor to you as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. The last time I looked up discouragement in some dictionaries, I found this, a loss of confidence or enthusiasm, dispiritedness. And while I don't like discouragement, I like to learn that. I never would have thought a textbook definition, a dictionary definition would would have said a loss of confidence. Huh, when I'm not confident about facing tomorrow, when I'm not confident about making decisions because I'm seemingly paralyzed because I'm so discouraged and down, I don't want to face tomorrow. I don't want to do the next hard thing. I don't want to do the next easy thing because I don't have a a boldness. I don't have a, a certainty. I don't have a, it's that word, confidence. I think that's really helpful. If I can be encouraged, I'll have confidence. If I can be encouraged, I'll have enthusiasm. One thing goes when I'm discouraged, I'm not enthusiastic about much of anything. So if I can be encouraged, I'll have confidence, I'll have enthusiasm, I will have, to use that word, spiritedness. So I hope that's one thing we can return to when we're done today, this matter of confidence, 
Let's have a confidence that, yes, I can face tomorrow. Yes, I can face anything. I can have a certain enthusiasm about my life because I'm not utterly discouraged. So number one, first coping mechanism, if you will, starting with an S, is social media. No, it's not. <laughs> it's one of the things, right, confession that dis- discourages me most. Um, so that won't be on the list, but you get the idea. Number one, understanding the sovereignty of God. Understanding the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty is the first S. And I probably want to correct myself already and say maybe um, remembering the sovereignty of God. Because who understands the breadth and depth and height and the majesty of the sovereignty of God? I think no one does. But understanding, remembering the sovereignty of God. And maybe you've heard R.C. Sproul say, it's God's favorite doctrine. And he goes on to say, and if you were God, it would be your favorite doctrine too. (laughs) When we talk about the sovereignty of God, we're talking about God being the king. He's the royal one. He's the ultimate one. He has all wisdom, all power, all might. He has a perfect plan and purpose for the world, and it will not be thwarted. He has a perfect purpose for your life, and it will not be thwarted. He is the sovereign God. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 says, He is the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The only sovereign. Just for shock value, I like to say, that's not even true. Now, I want some patience. I'm not correcting the Bible, and I'm not uh, trying to be a heretic or anything. But it says He's the only sovereign. That's not true in a certain sense, is it? Have there been other kings? Have there been other queens, princes? Absolutely there have been. There have been all kinds of sovereigns, but the Bible puts it in those terms because he's the only ultimate sovereign, right? He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. And so I like the way it puts it. In that sense, he's the only sovereign. As I like to say so often, he's the only capital S sovereign. There have been many other sovereigns. And in one sense, let's be glad there have been many sovereigns because they help us to understand something about what God is like. They don't perfectly mirror God, but they give us an idea, right? So lesser kings and queens, they have decrees. They have uh, agendas. They, they have uh, power. They have might. But at the end of the day, they don't always execute. They don't always fulfill. They can't always do what they say they're going to do. They don't always come through on their promises. So, sovereignty of God, we we need to understand the sovereignty of God, something of it that He's in charge, He's in control, but we also need to understand that God is sovereign and He is sovereign in everything. If I can remember, if you can remember, He's sovereign in everything, He acts sovereignly, then what I do hear about on social media that is tragic or discouraging, I can say, I don't know exactly how, but God is in control. God is sovereign. And that can cause me to not be so dispirited. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, there's a very important passage about God's sovereignty. And that important passage in Ephesians 1, 11 says this, that he, him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I want you to remember that. He works all things after the counsel of his will. That means, again, I'll have to quote R.C., there are no stray molecules. He works all things after the counsel of his will. That's mysterious. I, I, I can't get my mind around that. Everything that's happening in the world, everything that's happening, that is happening, (laughs) somehow is happening according, according to the counsel of His will. That causes me to have questions. It causes me to ponder. It causes me maybe to be a little uncomfortable sometimes. But it does cause me also to worship. And it causes me to be able to face tomorrow. He's sovereign. Nothing is happening apart from His sovereign will. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Well, that's important for us to know. Now let's push it a little bit further. Also, if you belong to Him by faith in His Son, all things that work according to the counsel of His will are also 
what? Working together for your good. This is great. This is extraordinary. This is the stuff that Romans chapter 8, verse 28 are made of, is made of. And I realize we talk about that passage a lot, but we should talk about it a lot. Right? That God works all things together for good to those who, for those who love him and those who have been what? Called according to his purpose. Yeah, it's so good that we know it. And I like to remember that passage, especially when I'm not discouraged. <laughs> I don't really like when people you know, kind of beat me over the head with it when I'm down. And, but I actually need it when I'm down. So I like remembering it when I'm up so that I can draw upon it when I'm down when I'm discouraged. So God is sovereign to the point where He's the only true sovereign and everything that's happening is according to His sovereign plan. And not only that, it's somehow, even if I have no idea how, somehow it's for my good. It's important that we remember this or we will be dispirited, everything's always gray kind of people. The sovereignty of God is great for us to know about. I saw out on the book table, there's the, the Jerry Bridges Trusting God 31-day devotional. I, I, I'm so tired of those 31-day books. <laughs> Too funny. <laughs> I love that book. I love Jerry Bridges because he's kind and he believes in the sovereignty of God. And he's such a good introduction to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, especially for people who are fearful of it. But Jerry Bridges, who understands the sovereignty of God better now than any of us do, um, because he's glorified, says this, if there is a single event in all of the universe that can occur outside of God's sovereign control, then we cannot trust him. His love may be infinite, but if his power is limited and his purpose can be thwarted, we cannot trust him. That's from a book called Trusting God because he is sovereign. You know the story of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis? Same thing, played out. We see it there. What does it say? Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant evil. It, what's it referring to? The evil. doesn't mean God is evil, but God is sovereign. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph didn't know what was going on at the time, at the moment. Nobody would have ultimately other than the ultimate one who's God. So if we're going to be spirited, if we're going to face tomorrow and find motivation, I think we need to start with the sovereignty of God and have that matter settled so that we can have confidence in Him. Ready for another S? Okay. What, what translation do you preach from usually, John? New American Standard. So I'm using ESV, um, the elect standard version. Um, <laughs> and and we, we are talking about the sovereignty of God, so... Actually, I prefer the New American Standard because that was what I learned the Bible from. So when I quote Scripture, it's New American Standard. That's how I think. Um, but to accommodate others, I use the ESV. So sorry about that. Mike last night had you know, double translations going on up here. Big, fun, big print. I was impressed. I was preaching one time in London, and uh, I just like to say that because it sounds cool. at a church that was funded by none other than Charles Haddon Spurgeon, but I'm not trying to show off. Anyway, <laughs> so one thing I don't like about the New American Standard, even though that's my go-to translation, is when you're somewhere else in a different country and you're preaching from an American Bible, it's not a good look, okay? So, but my notes were New American Standard, and here I am preaching in England. Uh, guess what? They don't use the New American Standard. <laughs> They're not big fans. <laughs> so as it, as it was, they had these, these monitors up front with the Scripture on them. I don't really know why, but I could see the NIV. And so I'm preaching New American Standard, and I never mentioned that. I just said I have a different translation. But then every time I could see, and I would say, as the NIV says, as the NIV says. And I was with a pastor friend of mine, and I was done preaching. I sat down, and he said, do you have the NIV memorized or what? <laughs> so anyway, he had no idea there were teleprompters. So anyway, all of that to say, please accommodate me. I'm using ESV, but 
we'll be close on the same page. Next strategy that we have here, we have seven of these, so we, I better speed up. No more, no more stories. Next strategy, number two, is understand self. Understand self. And let's understand ourselves, but then let's also understand other people. And really what I'm getting at is a simple thing, but it's to understand and remember, Christians, that the world has fallen. To remember, starting with Adam, he rebelled as our representative. And what happens? What happens is death. What happens is condemnation first. Condemnation, death, and with death comes suffering and with suffering comes discouragement and brokenness in the world and all of the calamity that we have started with Adam and it didn't stop in Genesis chapter 3. We're still living in a broken world and I'm living a broken life. And I realize this is super basic theology 101, but I have to remember that I'm a son and you're a son or a daughter of Adam even though you're united to the new Adam. But you still are broken, living in a broken world with the effects of sin. And just remembering that, just remembering that helps me to cope. It helps me to maneuver. It helps me to know, oh, that's why there is suffering. That's why there is discouragement. That's why there is conflict. That's why there is alienation in my own heart, in my own life. And then, once I, rem- I know that, that helps me. But also, and I think about other people I know, church members, family members, spouses, children, parents. They are never, ever, ever until glory going to perfectly do what they're supposed to do in their relationship with me. Even the saintliest of them. Even the Apostle Paul says what about himself? Speaking as a Christian, he says in 1 Timothy 1.15, chief of sinners. So, if I can just remember, we started with theology proper, sovereignty of God. If I can remember anthropology 101 from a Christian perspective. It's no wonder I don't meet all of my wife's needs. It's no wonder she doesn't meet all of my needs. It's no wonder there's conflict. It's no wonder even on the best of days, I let my best friends down. And on the best of days, my best friends drop the ball and don't encourage me the way I need to be encouraged. We just need to go back to basic theology, basic anthropology to remember such things. All have sinned, right? And it's not like we're glorified yet. Just basic things. And so now, practically speaking, so today when someone doesn't do for me what I would want them to do for me, in a certain sense, I have to say, what did you expect? What did you expect? I think there's a marriage book called What Did You Expect? I like the title. What did you expect? Life is hard being married. You're a sinner marrying a fellow sinner. So I realize this is like super basic, But if I can remember this, if you can remember this, you're going to be more generous. You're going to be more long-suffering is probably a good word for it. I don't mean to give you an excuse. Oh, well, I'm a jerk because I'm in Adam. (laughs) The, The Bible calls us to be responsible, but even the very, very saintliest of folk, if you want to put it that way, they're not perfect. They're, not, they're never going to be perfect. And it helps us, we need to remember that there's only one who is. There's only one perfect Savior. We like to joke sometimes and say we have functional saviors. Uh, yeah, you know what? I, I, need, I need help a lot from a lot of different people. But at the end of the day, there's only one, and his name is Jesus. And remembering this will make you a better church member. It'll make you a better parent, a better child, a better coworker, a better person on planet earth broken planet earth you're a broken person dealing with broken people pretty obvious but we forget about it sometimes sometimes we as christians say yeah but i'm a christian or we turn it on other people yeah but you're a christian how how could you do that we're all calvinists here we know how they could do that (laughs) right it's it's called sin that's how this could happen 
And so we forget that sometimes, and we need to remember that because otherwise we have, in theology, we say we have an over-realized eschatology, and that's not good. That's as if somehow there is no sin now. And so now we should be perfect, uh, perfect in our actions, perfect in our thinking, perfect with our health. Well, the Bible makes great promises about glorification, awesome ones. We're going to talk about some of them. They're so awesome, they speak as if they're already done. That's how sure they are. But if you overrealize it, you'll think it's in the here and now. We don't want to have an underrealized eschatology and say, well, we don't know how the future is going to, what the future holds. We have no idea. Oh, no, we do. It's certain. But let's make sure we have a category for what we experience now and what we could expect now and what we will experience and can expect later that is surely ours. We're adopted into the family. It's certain. But we've got to keep those categories straight. It's important that we keep those categories straight. Now, on a practical, well, all of this has been practical, I hope. But think about the, the world we're living in right now and, and, and right now how crazed we are for perfect happiness, perfect fulfillment. And unless you are feeling perfect about your relationship, you destroy it. Unless you are perfectly happy, uh, perfectly fulfilled in your marriage, well, and something must be wrong. Well, something is wrong. But our culture is something must be wrong, so it's time to end it. Whereas Christians should have a good enough understanding of things where we say, you think it's going to help to leave? No. Nothing is going to help except glory in an ultimate sense. So you watch, you watch advertisements for med, certain medicines. You, if I'm not acting perfectly, then I have to have this medicine. And if I'm not enjoying this perfectly, then I have to have this medicine. I'm not against medicines, don't get me wrong. But the way we're marketed to is unless you have this perfectly in your life, we've got a pill for you. Or you shouldn't be happy. And where I'm going with all of this is we have to remember that we are limping and we will limp until glory, figuratively speaking, sometimes literally speaking. So right now, the, the, the transgender issue is all the craze, and it's really crazy. I'm using that as an example. That's an example, I would suggest to you, of an overrealized eschatology. And I mean, I mean that in a, it's a lot of other things, but let me, let me talk to you like this. I'm not comfortable in my own skin. Well, guess what? You never will be in this world. You never will be comfortable in your own skin. None of us will be. But now we've just ratcheted things up where if you're not perfectly comfortable with who you are as a person, then do radical things. And the promise is, and if you do, then you will be comfortable in your own skin. Guess what? No, you won't. But it's a theological matter that we as Christians need to think about. The way we're going to avoid despairing, the way we're going to avoid discouragement is to realize none of us will ever be comfortable with who we are until we see Christ and we're made like Him. So it's important that we keep these kinds of things in mind. But it's not just a transgender issue, but that's the glaring example that we can think of. But it applies to the rest of us as well. Revelation 21.4 is where there will be no more tears. Revelation 21.4, no more tears. Guess what it takes to get rid of all tears. To get rid of all sin and to get rid of the effects of all sin. And when is that going to happen? <laughs> it's not going to happen until Christ returns. And so in the here and now, we've got to remember that we are broken people living broken lives with other people who are broken living, living broken lives. Only one thing is going to bring about perfection and it's Christ that's when we won't suffer that's when we won't have tears anymore but knowing that causes us to be to use that old word spirited oh okay I now I have a better idea of why I feel the way I do but I'm looking forward to this the solution let's move on to another one number three another strategy for coping with discouragement would be understanding suffering understanding suffering and this one's related to the other one so i'll do this one rather quickly we've already talked talk, 
spoken about the curse and its effects, but we have to have an idea of where suffering comes from. So, let's think about this. Where does suffering come from? D- does suffering ever come, number one? Does it ever come because of what you do? It does, right? Uh, sometimes we suffer because we do dumb things, right? Or, 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 or because of my actions, it leads to consequences, Because of my sin, I've gotten myself into this mess, and now I'm miserable and I'm suffering. So sometimes we suffer because of what we do. Is it always the case? It's not always the case. Sometimes we suffer just because we're in a broken world. Remember remember Jesus when he's interacting with the disciples. Uh, It's in John chapter 9. I'll just reference it. Uh, But they see a man born blind from birth. What do they ask Jesus? Yeah, who sinned? Right? Who sinned that would cause this? Is it something his parents did? And Jesus says, no. It's an opportunity for me to do a miracle, but that it wasn't because of sin is my point. It's because we live in a broken world, and in that case, God was going to miraculously offer help, by the way, as a preview to the age to come where there will be no blindness. Remember, Jesus' miracles oftentimes are showing a preview of coming attractions, okay? He, he wasn't just the new health care plan for everybody. Uh, he was there showing that he's the Messiah, the Christ, the one who will take away all suffering one day. But So sometimes we suffer because of sin. Sometimes we suffer because, just because we live in a broken world. But we also need to remember that sometimes we suffer because persecution. Sometimes we suffer because Jesus said, in this world you will have what? Trouble, Right? You will have trouble, John chapter 16, verse 33. You will have tribulation. And we, have to re- we just need to know a theology of suffering. So let's turn to Philippians 1. How about Philippians chapter 1? So I can be discouraged because I'm suffering. I'm not happy. I'm not ha- oh, I'm suffering. Isn't this great? This is wonderful. People like that are crazy. <laughs> Okay. I mean, suffering is bad. We don't want to be discouraged. We don't, want, we don't want to be suffering. But when we suffer, if we know there's a purpose behind it, ultimately, sovereignty of God, as we suffer, we can say, I at least understand something about this. And so I don't have to be dispirited. I can have some courage. I can have some motivation through the suffering. And Philippians 1 is a great text that gives us some light into this. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted, that's the word where we get our English word grace. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you, it has been graced to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him. Interestingly enough, He expects that we understand that faith comes as a gift. He expects all Christians to know that. I wish all Christians did know that faith is a gift. But it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, every Christian should know that, but then it says, but also granted to suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So that, that helps me too. To, and, and it seems there the, it's conflict because of your union with Christ, because you're a Christian. Because of the gospel, that's another place where suffering comes. I'm standing up for absolute truth. I believe there's only one way to heaven. I believe that people must believe in Jesus for eternal life. I believe that uh, everything that Jesus says is true. I believe that you have to believe in him uh, to have eternal life, as I said. So the idea is that's going to lead to conflict. And if you're defending the faith, it's going to lead to suffering. I need to know that. And right now, In our world, as it's always been, if you believe the truth about Jesus and the things that he said, and you're willing to stand by them and stand up for them, hopefully in a kind and generous way as a sinner, there's going to be a rub, whether it's at your job or in your family. I've experienced in my family, because of the gospel, because I'm a Christian, because of things I say are true and other things are sinful, My life isn't as good as it would be otherwise. But ultimately, I'm a child of God. I belong to Christ. He has the words of eternal life. It's worth it. But if I understand a text like this, it's been granted. All right. I understand better now. I don't understand all things, but I understand better. And so I can have more encouragement and less discouragement. 
Let's do another one. Let's do number four. Another strategy. We're doing seven of these. Coping with discouragement. And the next one is, oh, maybe my favorite. Number four, understand salvation. Understand salvation. And I want you to look with me, if you would, at 2 Corinthians 5.17. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is our text to understand salvation better. And some of you already know what I'm about to say, and others of you think you know what I'm about to say. I memorized 2 Corinthians 5.17 maybe as one of my very first passages to memorize in the Bible, and I'll confess to you that I would imagine for at least a decade, if not two, I didn't really understand what it meant. I'm thankful for Scripture memory. I'm glad I memorized it, but it's kind of weird to think I had no clue. It encouraged me. I could recite it. I'm thankful for that. But really, what's he getting at? And so let's dive in a little bit. Understand salvation. I want us to understand salvation better. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, we read these words, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, are all Christians in Christ? Yes. We're united to Him, inseparable from Him. It happens by faith. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. How does your translation put it? New creature, okay, new creation, new creature. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. I, at first, just to get your attention, want to say, that's not true. Just like I said earlier about a passage. That's simply not true. It's not true that the old has passed away. It's not true that the new has come. If it were true, we would never be discouraged. Never, if it were true. Now, it is true. In this sense, he's impressing upon the reader, he wants us to be impressed with the fact that this is already a settled matter. This is already a certainty, even though you've not experienced it yet, but because you're in Christ, you're united to Him, and He's the resurrected one, it's true for you, but you've not experienced it yet. And so in theology, we have categories for these kinds of things. We say uh, that this is uh, already But it's not yet, right? Or we say it's been inaugurated, but it's not been, anybody? Consummated. And the reason we come up with these categories is not to try to be fancy or, you know, weird or have a made-up language. It's because we have to have categories to understand the Scripture for texts like this. It's been inaugurated. It's, it's, It's a certainty, but it's not yet been consummated at Christ's return. And I do like the new creation uh, translation. I would prefer it uh, because it captures this idea. It's, new, it's true you're a new creature. But he's talking, he, he literally is talking about new creation realities. You, you are already in the new creation. But you're, not really, but you are. How could it possibly be? Is he just playing word games? No, it's because you're in Christ. And Christ has been raised and Christ has ascended. And you're united to Him. And so when you're united to Him, you receive Christ and all of His benefits. That's what it means to be united to Christ. This is extraordinary. This is one of the just most exciting passages I could imagine. And it was, you know, lying dormant for 20 years of my life, I think. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And if it helps you to think of it, it means you're already a part of the coming new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Do you know what I do? You, do you understand what I was getting at earlier when I said that's not true? That's not true for me, or I wouldn't ever be discouraged. But now, what we can do is because it is true for Christ, and I'm in Christ, I can be encouraged because of that certainty, and I can be motivated and not be so passive and sad and gray this is the same kind of thing in romans 8 30 where it says you've been glorified no you haven't (laughs) you've not been glorified but oh yes you have because you're in christ and it's it's a certainty it's absolutely certain that you've been glorified even though you won't be glorified until you see christ and are made like him but because you're united to him it's sure I used to have a friend named Emmett, Emmett Champion. 
And he came to Omaha Bible Church, and he, first it was Catholicism, and then it was radical charismaticism. He gave me his Kenneth Copeland study Bible. So (laughs) I still have it for the special anointing. (laughs) So so Emmett was, was a recovering, he was a recovering charismatic, okay? That's what he was. And so he was pretty sick, and he had some lung issues, and he didn't have long on this earth, and he would say to me, Pastor, I'm, I'm still praying for my healing. Still praying for my healing. And eventually, I said, Emmett, you need to stop praying for your healing. And he looked at me like, I said, it's okay, God may heal you. God can do anything God wants to do. Absolutely, he's sovereign. But Emmett, I want you to stop praying for your healing because the prayer's already been answered. And I just wanted to provoke his thinking. And I took him to passages like Romans 8, 28, and 29, and 30, and 2 Corinthians 5. And when the Bible promises in 1 Peter, by his stripes you are healed, same category. It's already certain to Emmett. It's more than likely, given what the doctors have said, you're, you're, you're going to die from this. But it's absolutely certain those passages that you're claiming for your here and now healing are not even talking about that. They're talking about what is already absolutely positively certain for you when you breathe your last breath. By his stripes you are. That's an already not yet inaugurated, not consummated category. And if we know this, we can be far more motivated as Christians facing the hardship of suffering and difficulty if we understand salvation. I want you, I want my own heart, I want all Christians to understand salvation better. It's maybe, put it this way, it's better than you even thought it was because it's certain. It's absolutely certain. This is one of the reasons why I think church matters so much. I, I, I need to go to church as prescribed by the Lord and I need to be there on the Lord's day and I need to be reminded of what He did for me. The certainty of what He did for me. I need to hear the gospel. I need to hear the basics. I need to hear what it means to be in Christ because tendency is by the time I get the key fob out, I've forgotten most of it before I get in my pickup truck. I need to be reminded. We talked about it last night. In the Lord's wisdom, he gave us such simple things, like Mike was saying yesterday, water, bread, wine, his word. I need to be reminded of of what's true for me. I love baptisms. I love watching baptisms. I, I love baptisms because it reminds me of what it means to be in Christ. remember what happens in baptism. It's not a magical potion water, but it wonderfully pictures what happens when you trust in Christ. And anyone who is in Christ, union with Him, is is a new creation. Old things passed away, new things have come. It's awesome. It's wonderful. Okay, we'd better move on. Number five. Strategy number five for coping with discouragement would be understand sunlight. Understand sunlight. Proverbs 6, 6. And this is a stretch. I want you to know that. You'll see. It's a legitimate stretch. Proverbs 6, 6. I'll let you find it because I want you to see this. I think the older I get, the more discouraged I am. I don't know why. Maybe it's lack of spiritual growth. Maybe it's too much news intake, too many podcasts. I don't know. Um, But just maybe it's my own physical body. Maybe it's watching others suffer that I love. I, I don't know, but I'm more and more discouraged. I need these kind of things more and more in my life. These are discouraging times. But in a certain sense, they've always been discouraging times. We need to remember the sovereignty of God. We need to understand suffering. We need to also understand even things like this. Understand sunlight. Proverbs 6.6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. 
Consider her ways and be wise. Did, did we see the word sun or sunlight in there? No, it's not in there. But in principle, it is. And here's what I mean. Consider the ant. So here is inspired Scripture given to us by God, and it is a declaration to look outside of the Bible to learn a thing or two about life. Right? This is from the Bible telling you to look outside of the Bible to learn things from God. Think about that. And here it says ants. But the, the reason I said it's a stretch, it's a good stretch. He's talking about nature. Look at, the, look at God's other book. So we have His inspired Scripture that we must have, but also there's another volume in His library. Look at His other book. In His other book, we call General Revelation. It's the world around us. So if we're called to learn from ants, and they're hard workers, and maybe other things, but the idea is look outside of the Bible too. And sometimes we, we are too much, uh, maybe we're coming out of fundamentalism or something like that or who knows what kind of Christianity. We think that we should never look anywhere other than the Bible to learn things. Well, how's that working for your mechanic? <laughs> right? We should look at God's other volume too. Look at the world. How does it work? We're supposed to look at the world. And I don't mean worldliness. But we're supposed to look at the world to learn about life. And so I say, study the sun, understand the sun. And th- what I'm getting at is, we learn from experts who hopefully are trustworthy that it's a good idea to get some sunlight. It's a good idea to be outside. I don't know if this is true or not, but I read it on the internet, so I know it's true. <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay, how about something like this? This is pretty common knowledge. This isn't really controversial as far as I know. Without enough sun exposure, your serotonin levels can dip. Low levels of serotonin are associated with higher risk of major depression with a seasonal pattern, formerly known as seasonal affective disorder or SAD. <laughs> I kind of like that. Uh, this, is, this is a form of depression triggered by the changing seasons. Okay. Sounds right to me. Pretty much figured out I'm, I'm a lot happier outside when I get some sunlight. And other people seem to agree with this as well. And so maybe it would be a good idea to cope with my discouragement to learn from the ant or nature. You know what? It would be a good idea if I just got some fresh air. Good idea if I just took a walk. Good idea if I just rode my bike. Oh, maybe we can learn not just from sunlight, but we can learn other things about life and the human body that it's meant to move and it's meant to exercise. And isn't it amazing, I come home from my workout so much less grumpy, (laughs) to put it how my wife might say it. I just feel better. It's like medicine. Well, don't forget about this, Mr. and Mrs. Christian, uh, that we need to learn about life from God also outside of the Bible. Sometimes we think it's risky, but some of the stuff is just common sense. And sometimes Christians don't have common sense. And sometimes I as a Christian don't have common sense. Let's learn about the world around us. It's natural law. It's God's other book. Let's move on. Number six. And number six is understand our sojourner status. Understand our stranger status understand our sojourner status and i'm going to talk about this tomorrow so we'll do this one real quickly but in first peter chapter 1 verse 1 we're called elect exiles in first peter chapter 2 verse 11 we're called sojourners and exiles and maybe your translation puts it a little bit differently but you'll get the idea some of them say strangers and aliens It's really important that we understand this. Peter's writing to Christians who are feeling out of place. Peter's writing to Christians who are suffering. Peter's writing to Christians who are persecuted and all of those kinds of things. And he addresses them like the Old Testament Israelites were addressed when they were in exile. They want to be in Jerusalem. They want to be in their great grand city. That's where they want to be. They want to be home. But they're not. And so here he says, you Christians are sort of like the sojourners in the Old Testament. In fact, I'm even going to use that label for you. You want to be home. But this is not home. 
And we'll talk about it tomorrow. We wait for the new Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that the Bible says is from above. But one of the reasons that I'm discouraged right now is because I'm not home. I want to be home. Now, staying uh, with the Tuckers is nice. They're hospitable, other than the gray cat that scared me. (laughs) Right? I was picking something up on the floor in the bedroom yesterday, and on the bed, I thought, what in the world? There's an animal. (laughs) So anyway, staying with the Tuckers is is nice. It's a great getaway. It's relaxing. They have nice food and coffee, and can hang out together, and they have a nice place. Uh, You all are hospitable and friendly. It's nice coming to Ohio. This is this is great. But what will happen when I pull into the driveway? in Omaha, Nebraska, at my house. You all know because you've traveled before. And my shoulders will go down. And you know, I wanted to get away from home, but there's something like, if my shoulders will go down, I'll just be so much different and I'll walk in the house and the smell and everything. And my wife, it's just like, not the smell of my wife. You get the idea. (laughs) It's awesome. Home is awesome. And I think God made us this way even in this world so we, we would have a sense of we're strangers and aliens and, we're, and we might have a great time of it but not always and we're longing for our heavenly home. It's built in the way that we are. If you've ever traveled outside of the country and sometimes it's fun, sometimes it's not fun but if you've ever had a not so fun experience or a scary experience Maybe you can even relate more and you say, I just want to go back to the U.S. I just want to go back to my country. I just want to go back to where I live in my house. I can't wait. I was in Siberia one time. I hated it. I was so distraught and depressed. and I, It was good for my prayer life. But <laughs> seriously, I, I just despised it. So I could go on and on and have this be a counseling session, but I won't do it. <laughs> But it gives you that sense of being a stranger and an alien. This is not my country. I want to go back to my country and my place. And I'm going to be so much happier. I don't belong here. It's not my language. It's not my manners. It's not my customs. It's not my food. Get me out of Navasbirsk. <laughs> in our world right now, even when we're home in Ohio or Nebraska or Massachusetts, you shouldn't feel altogether comfortable. You shouldn't always, I would say, you shouldn't always even know what to do. How do, I do. how do I do this? How do I function as a Christian? Well, when you're a stranger and an alien, that's a question you're going to ask, and you're not always going to know the answer to it. If I could only be in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem from above, everything will be set right. So looking forward to talking about that tomorrow. Finally, the last one we're going to do, final coping mechanism, strategy, whatever we want to call it, and that would be number seven, understand the second coming. Understand the second coming, especially all of the intricacies of the timing and what happened. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) So what the Lord Jesus said you won't know, we all think we do know. So you have to understand something about the, the eschaton, right? The, the end time, the, 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 the return of Christ. It's, it's supposed to be built in us. How long, O oh Lord? We're waiting for it. But that is when all things will be made new. At the very end, Revelation 21.5 is a great, 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 great statement that will help us to cope with the here and now discouragements. And it's this statement. Revelation 21.5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I am, purposely he puts it that way, I am making all things new. It's a certainty to the point where he's, it's recorded that way. I am doing this. We have to remember that we're not going to experience it until his return. We're not going to have new things, perfectly new things, perfectly perfect things, things that make us utterly and perfectly happy until He and He alone makes all things new. And so it built in us to be anticipating, to be waiting, to care about eschatology, 
not as some sort of weird hobby to try to figure everything out that we're told not to figure out, but we better have this one figured out. He's making all things new. I love what William Hendrickson says about this in his little book, More Than Conquerors. Only God can make new. People may vainly imagine that by means of better education, a better environment, better legislation, and a more equitable distribution of wealth, they're going to usher in a new era, a golden age, the utopia of man's ardent desire. Their dream remains a dream, he says. It is only God who through His Spirit makes all things new. He alone can restore and renew man and the universe. That's right. He and He alone is going to make all things new to the point where it says He is making all things new. That's like an already not yet kind of thing. But one thing I want you to see before we're done in that passage is it is an imperative It's a command. Behold! Look at this. Stare at this. Think about this. In other words, look to Christ. Look to Him. Have your gaze fixed upon Him. It's a command that you would behold in Christ, even in the here and now, that He's making all things new. To the degree that we can be better by God's grace, by the power of the Spirit, at beholding, Christ, the one who is making all things new, going back to where we started, I can have more courage and not be so discouraged. I can find more motivation. I can find more spiritedness because I'm beholding the one who is, yes, making all things new. So we say, come Lord Jesus. That's a good kind of futuristic outlook that we need to have as strangers and aliens. I hope it's encouraging to talk about discouragement today. I'm so glad that your pastor asked me to talk about it and that you came out on a Saturday morning to listen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for these texts of Scripture that we've looked to. Thank You for the fact that You've not left us without instruction. Help us as men and women and boys and girls to be beholding the Lord Jesus Christ, the One who is making all things new. Help us to long for that day when our faith becomes sight and He returns to make every wrong right and to bring about perfect righteousness even here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.